What role do data and statistics play in formulating public policy? Has popular economics improved economic literacy? And how might a successful centrist party be created? From the Chicago Policy Review and the University of Chicago, this is Chicago Policy Radio. I'm your host, David Levine. Today we're talking with Professor Charlie Whelan. Charlie Whelan is a senior lecturer and policy fellow at the Rockefeller Center at Dartmouth College. From 2004 to 2012, Whelan was a senior lecturer in public policy at the Harris School of Public Policy at the University of Chicago. In March of 2009, Whelan ran unsuccessfully for Congress as a representative for the Illinois 5th District in a special election to replace Rahm Emanuel. Professor Whelan, thank you for joining us. Oh, it's good to be with you. In one of your books, Naked Statistics, the subtitle is Stripping the Dread from the Data. What is the dread? The dread is what people suffered through in statistics courses. It's often the highly mathematical stuff, the sense that it's not intuitive, that it might not matter. It speaks indirectly to many of the statistics courses that I took, some of them here, some of them undergrad, but it's this sense that it's a torturous tool that's hard to master, you suffer through, and you move on. Today, you're speaking about why people should love statistics? Particularly those in the social sciences, those in public policy. I think it's always been true. If you care about changing the world, data help you change the world. Statistics help you understand data. It's even more important now than, say, 15 or 20 years ago when I was in grad school, just because the quantity of data has exploded. It probably truly reflects the correct word uh, use of the word exponential. The marriage of digital data, cheap internet, Cheap computing power and then searchability means that no matter what field you're in, you're going to be deluged with information. Especially with the rise of computing power, what are some of the things that we can do now that we couldn't do even, say, 10 years ago? Well, some of the, some of the most important things we're not necessarily any better at than we used to be. So we, we can get more data and we can analyze it more cheaply. But in a policy sense, the key really to most of the stuff we care about is teasing out whether you've got a causal relationship or just a correlation. Exactly. Right? That's right. Exactly. I mean, that, that's the most important thing you can do. And just having lots of data means you're not necessarily doing controlled experiments. So you have the same old challenge. And there's nothing that I know about cheap computing that makes it any easier. If anything, it makes it easier and more likely that somebody who doesn't know what they're doing is going to get a huge data set, find some connection between two variables just as a matter of chance, and suggest that it's actually causal. So the stuff that we care about, which is making these inferences that truly reflect A causing B, is not any easier. It may even be harder because we're going to be swamped with all kinds of spurious findings. That's one natural progression of having lots and lots of data. Okay, then in the search for finding causal relationships rather than correlations, how do we get rid of the dread? Well, I think one of the things I'm going to talk about today, one of the things that University of Chicago has contributed to is just very clever study designs. So one of the things I find intriguing about social science research in general is the broad field of kind of program evaluation. So what, how have people found clever ways to tease out that causality when 
you can't necessarily do a controlled experiment. So you're looking for natural experiments. So Jesse Shapiro, who I think is still at the University of Chicago, is trying to examine the effect of watching television on kids. So is it good or bad or not at all if, if young yeah, kids are watching yeah, TV? Yeah. It's all about whether this is bad for children's development or doesn't affect children's development. But it's a very hard thing to study because families where kids are watching four hours of television are obviously different than families where they're not watching any television at all. And it's very hard to control for that. Education income are not going to pick up everything that's different. So he did this really clever natural experiment. So he went back and he discovered that the FCC granted television licenses to different places at different times. So television arrived in certain places years before it arrived in other places. So though there were places where kids were watching more TV for reasons that had nothing to do with their families. And then he looked at whether those kids later on did better, worse, or about the same. And he found that there was no appreciable impact in terms of watching television. So in terms of clever research ideas, what, some, what were some of the features of the best? They tend to find natural experiments. They tend to find variation where the rest of us just see some curiosity and they see an experiment in the, ba in the making. Very famous one in Chicago, uh, the Gautreaux remedy. So the, uh, there was a series of tenants of Chicago public housing who sued CHA, Chicago Housing Authority, because there had been deliberate segregation. Uh, Dorothy Gautreau was the lead plaintiff, so it's often called the Gautreau case. The remedy to the case was that a large number of CHA residents got vouchers to move somewhere else. But there was a waiting list, and not everybody could be accommodated, and those who were accommodated, some were settled elsewhere in the city, and some were moved to the suburbs. So what you end up with is a natural experiment. You have some folks who are moved out of a dense, poor environment to a completely different environment, and then you have other folks who wanted to leave. Right? So they've, they've exhibited all the same characteristics, but they didn't get to go. Then you can compare outcomes for those folks and their children, and you can take out the selection effect, because they all said they wanted to leave. Only some of them got that opportunity. So waiting lists, anytime you see something like that, a lottery, where you have winners and losers. Brian Jacobs, who was a peer of mine in the PhD program at Harris, did a very clever experiment looking at whether magnet schools in Chicago have any impact. And one way you can do that is obviously you get into a magnet school or you don't. So it's hard to compare the two. The people didn't get in, didn't get in. But he had a clever experimental design that's now been exploited in other places where he said, all right, well, let, let's, there's a score that you get that gets you into the magnet school. Let's look at those folks who just barely got in. So if 60 is the cutoff, let's look at the folks who got 60.1. The understanding that those two groups are exactly the same. Right. And then there's some people who got 59.9. And some got into the magnet school, some didn't, but essentially they were the same when they were applying. And then let's follow their subsequent academic performance and see what makes a difference. My recollection is that he didn't find a whole lot of difference at the, the magnet school. In fact, the schools that everybody fights to get their kids into didn't appear to have a profound impact on the trajectory of their lives. You are certainly one of a few authors who have started this notion of popularized economics. Can you talk about that field, if it is one, and your role in it? Well, it's curious because the reason I wrote Naked Economics in the first place was because there was nothing else out there. It, the book was written by accident. I was teaching a course at Medill while I was writing for The Economist. I wanted to use a book in the course that would be accessible, that would convey to the students why economics matters, why it's actually interesting. I couldn't find one, so I called somebody in the publishing industry and I said, you know, can you send me a book that is popular economics? And this woman said, no, there isn't one, but you should write it and it'll be called Economics for Poets, and I'll read it. So that was written by accident. Now, 
Concurrently, you have Steve Levitt writing Freakonomics that comes out almost at the same time, and then there are a whole bunch of other authors also in that space. I can't necessarily explain it, but it did kind of explode all at the same time. But certainly my role in it was completely independent. Well, do you think Naked Economics could have some kind of impact? I mean, I'm going to ask you in a second about your run for office. Do you think it could have some real presence there? My fear is that it's not deep enough that people find this stuff kind of interesting, they like the Freakonomics examples well enough, but that when you go out and look at the economic literacy of the population and you push on issues like flattening the tax code, on imposing a carbon tax, on fixing entitlement programs, things where economists across the ideological spectrum would agree almost universally we need to do. They may differ on the, on the flavor of the fix, but everyone's going to say this is broadly something you ought to do. There's very little support in, in the population for those kinds of things. So my fear is that we're still a long way off from being as economically literate as we ought to be. On a similar note, in March 2009, you ran for Congress for Mayor Rahm Emanuel's former seat. What were your expectations going in? What do you think of what happened? Well, there's a short answer to what happened. I lost. Going in... Yeah, exactly. The um, expectations going in were more complicated. I was teaching at Harris at the time. Indeed, I continued to teach all through the campaign. So I would come screaming down to campus on Wednesdays. I said, look, I'm not going to grade anything, but I will tell you in advance what we're going to do on the campaign, and we kind of follow it week by week, so you get to see it campaign. And oh, that, was, that was the course? That, yeah. I, well, the course was uh, analyzing communicating policy, but clearly as part of the course, mm -hmm. I, we did a real-time discussion of what was going on in the campaign. My thinking was, and this in some ways gets back to your previous question, that you have these almost parallel universes of academics who work on policy issues, and then you have politicians who do policy, and it's almost shocking how little overlap there is. I'd actually written a paper called The Wonks and the Hacks, where the wonks are the people who go to the Harris School and study things like elasticities and tax rates and so on, and the hacks are people who go to Washington and treat politics like a horse race. And you can't be all one or the other if you actually want to fix problems, because if you're all wonk, whatever you do will just be irrelevant. Nobody will actually pass. And if you're all hack, all you care about is winning an election. You don't really care about doing anything. So I do think it's important to be both. And so this seat opened up. Rom was my congressman. So there it was in my district. And my thinking was, I've talked a lot about this stuff. Am I willing to, to actually do it? And if I am willing to do it, this would be the very best chance I'll ever have, because it's a short race, so it was only a th roughly a two-and-a-half, three-month cycle. There was no front-runner, which is very unusual in Chicago, because everyone thought Rahm was going to stick around and be Speaker of the House. So usually somebody is queued up and he anoints somebody. And then you had all these political scandals. So Blagojevich was indicted roughly a week into the campaign, which meant that all the usual players from Mayor Daly on down just froze in place. Nobody was endorsing anybody. So I thought, you know, that plus the fact that Obama, who'd been a senior lecturer at the University of Chicago, had just been elected president, I thought if there's ever a, a time for me personally to get involved in politics and for the electorate to say, wow, maybe we should go with a different model, this would be it. Did I think I was going to win going in? No, but I also didn't think that it was an impossibility. If, if certain things had turned certain directions, you could tell a story whereby the campaign would work. Um, so that's kind of, the, the, you know, that was the table as it was set when I decided to plunge in. Coming out in April is your book, The Centrist Manifesto. Can you talk a little about what that is? So this is a different way of plunging back into the political fold. 
along with my concern about the wonks and the hacks, another concern is, and this is certainly people share this widely, concern about how polarized the political process has become. And you can actually document that empirically when you look at voting records and so on. The Republican Party in particular, because of the Tea Party, has been pulled right, and you have folks saying they're not going to run again, Republicans because they're being challenged from the right. But then I also know from my own experience that it's, as somebody who's kind of economically conservative, simply because the math suggests we can't keep doing what we're doing on certain fronts, it's very hard to get out of a Democratic primary if you are in favor of entitlement reform and some other things that I think are inevitable and just have to be done. So the idea of the centrist manifesto is to create a third political party of the middle knowing full well that third parties in this country have a horrible record. But there are a couple innovations in the book. One is the idea is not to win the presidency. We have an obsession with the presidency of the Green Party, the Bull Moose Party. Anytime anybody runs as a third party, they always want to capture the White House. But we know the Electoral College makes that virtually impossible. Even if you were to get close to, you know, to get a plurality of electoral votes, it goes to the House of Representatives, as you know, and you're going to have no centrist there, so you wouldn't even win the presidency. The institutional quirk that we can exploit, however, is the U.S. Senate. So there are a number of states, including a lot of the Midwest and a lot of New England, where a centrist Senate candidate could easily win. And curiously, you only need 34% of the vote. So if you're running in Illinois, where we have one Republican senator and one Democratic senator, and we have historically elected governors kind of going back and forth, Democrats and Republicans, Illinois would be a very good state to run a Senate candidate in the middle during the primary, the Democrats and Republicans kind of go to their extremes. I call it, you know, crazy town when I'm feeling flipped. But you, there are things you have to say in a primary that you're going to try and walk back when you get to the general election. But the centrist candidate doesn't have to do that. So somebody owns the middle from the beginning, and all they have to do is hold the middle. They don't even need to make it, you know, because 30 or 40 percent of the electorate describe themselves as independent, moderate, some variation on that. If you then win a handful of Senate seats, in Illinois, in New Hampshire, in Maine, where Angus King has already won as an independent, in Rhode Island, Delaware, California, North Carolina. Imagine a Senate that is 48-4-48, or even something like 56-5-39, you know, if I've done the, the math right. But the key is, you know, in one case, the centrists are the ones who are important for a majority. In the other case, they're the ones who deny the filibuster to the minority party. In either case, they're like a small coalition partner in a parliamentary system. They have disproportionate power. You make it sound so simple, so why is it hard? It's hard because people are, there's a tremendous political inertia. People agree the current system is broken. They agree, agree we have this whole host of policy problems that we're not addressing. Most people describe themselves as something akin to what the centrist party would stand for. But I think we've had two major parties for so long that I think it's hard for people to conceive of anything different. Even though, as a culture, we embrace innovation all the time in the private sector. Right? So if I told you there were two cable companies who had owned the market since 1864, right? never mind the cable didn't exist. The youngest political party in the United States is the Republicans. They were created before the Civil War to deal with slavery. Right? So when your youngest political party was created to deal with slavery, you know maybe there's some reinventing to be done. In the private realm, you know, we fully get it. Two cable companies, 90% of the customers say they're unhappy, which is, by the way, the disapproval rate for Congress right now. Uh, you know, fluctuates from like 9 to 11%. Only that matters. Right. And if you said, look, we're going to create a new company that we think can do it better, people would flock to it. But in the public realm, 
um, there's just not the imagination to kind of plunge in and try something new. I heard a talk in which you said the following was the stupidest thing you ever heard a smart person say. Is government irrelevant? Oh yes, this is the TEDx talk. And this was a real thing. So this was, uh, I know it was in 2000, actually I know exactly when it was. It was before 9-11, which turns out to matter. It was 2000, which was also the heyday of the dot-com bubble. So some of the air had come out of it, but there was still a certain hubris associated with high tech. And I was at a conference. It was a bunch of U.S. and British delegates. It was December of 2000 because we were still trying to figure out who had won the presidential election. And this, some guy stood up. He was from Silicon Valley and said, government's irrelevant. We're past that. And my thinking and what that subsequent talk that you've seen addressed is that's just preposterous. Government is what creates property rights. Without property rights, a market system doesn't work. Government fixes externalities. Every environmental problem we care about is a negative externality. It allows us to deal with collective action problems. So when we collectively can make ourselves better off but cannot muster the will to do it for some very obvious economic reasons. Uh, so, and then of course you get 9-11 that comes along and gee, all right, well national defense is kind of the classic public good. So we do need government. So yes, I, I understood where he was coming from, but it does, to me it represents a kind of a private sector that's out of touch with why government is so important to lay the tracks on which everything else runs. On a final note, you've talked about international problems and whether our modern governments are capable of fixing them. Do you think we can fix climate change? I'm very concerned about climate change because to me it's the perfect storm of a problem that will be difficult like institutionally. It's got on every level, right? So it's a classic negative externality. So all of our private behavior doesn't take into account. Even people who care deeply about the environment aren't paying a price literally for their carbon emissions. So we're all going to do more than we, we should. So we're not, none of us in the world, with the exception of maybe British Columbia and a few other places that have carbon tax, are really internalizing the cost. Then you've got a huge collective action problem internationally, which is it's a very hard thing for the U.S. to impose a carbon tax because all the companies, just the polluting companies, just moved to China. We won't be better any better off. We will have lost that economic benefit, and the environment is just as bad off as it was. So you do need some mechanism for doing this together. And then, of course, you get to the point that you, you brought up, which is, all right, well, we don't actually have an international body with sufficient teeth to impose kind of some kind of solution, which is what we would do if this were a similar problem that affected only Chicago or only the Midwest or only within the boundaries of the United States. So I think you kind of add all these things out. And then the other thing is you have some very powerful organized interests that certainly don't want the price of carbon to go up. Uh, and therefore, and you, of course you've got the, the folks who aren't, aren't even persuaded that there's a problem. And to kind of take this full circle back to naked statistics, it's very hard to prove climate change to somebody who is willing to be a skeptic because we can't run controlled experiments. We've got a connection between man's activities and, and things that are happening in the environment, but it's tough to prove causality or at least to persuade people that causality is going on. So I think you add all those factors up and you're going to need some really powerful leadership in this country and then some peer countries to get something done that's binding and actually changes behavior. Well, of the poor alternatives that we have, what do you think is the best? I would support a carbon tax or cap and trade, which is more similar than you would than it often gets credit for. Anything that puts a price on carbon, uh, I would do it in conjunction with Europe because Australia's already implemented one, but you could put, Europe is far ahead of us in terms of putting a price on carbon. Uh, they already have a carbon trading market. I'm not sure they've set the limits low enough that it's making any difference. But nonetheless, I think you could, you could strike a deal with Europe. And then I think what you'd have to do 
is impose some kind of carbon tariff for imports from countries that don't put a price on carbon, namely China and India. In which case, if you're going to import to this country, we will levy a tax equal to the cost of carbon on that product. What that would do most likely is get those countries to harmonize their tax code so that they also impose a carbon tax. Because if you're looking for revenue in India or China or anywhere else, a carbon tax is a very good way to, ra to raise revenue. So I don't think that you would maybe even have to implement it. It might just be a threat. But that would be the, the, probably the stick that would bring some of these other countries along. But you, the U.S. has got to lead on this. Professor Whelan, thank you for joining us. Oh, thank you. Thank you so much for listening to Chicago Policy Radio, a production of the Chicago Policy Review and the Harris School of Public Policy at the University of Chicago. Our podcast is produced and edited by David Levine and Claire O'Hanlon. Our theme song was composed and performed by Ryan Gee. Special thanks to Jasmine Fryer and Gunnar Hamlin. You can find us at www.chicagopolicyreview.org and on iTunes, or email us at media at chicagopolicyreview.org. Thanks for listening, and join us next time. <laughs>